Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. If you are reading from the Bibles at the back of the church, this passage begins on page 1072. John, chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Grace. Children, at this point, if with your parents' permission, up through grade three, you're dismissed to junior worship. And let's take a moment. Actually, before we pray, I just want to say thank you so much for affording me the opportunity to take a, a break last week. I got to be with some good friends and enjoy the out of doors, and it was just, it was a blessing. But I've missed you. I'm glad to be back. And so blessed uh, this morning. There's so many opportunities for gratitude. We have, we have such, God has provided our church with such wonderful ministers and such wonderful servants that we can have good teaching consistently all the time, no matter who we turn to. It's just wonderful. It's really good to be in a congregation um, that serves so faithfully and so well and so lovingly. So thank you so much for your kindness to me. And thank you, Pastor John, for last week. And thank you, Joe, for this morning. It's just a it's been a good day. Friends, let's pray. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning eager for your help, knowing that without your help we will be powerless. Powerless to see our sin. Powerless to see your righteousness. Powerless to see and hope and hasten the day of your return. Father, help us. Open our eyes that we can see and understand your word. Lead us into all this truth. Explain to us the things that Jesus did. Apply them to our hearts and make us fit and faithful servants for you. Do this, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. My printer decided to print things double-sided. That threw me for a loop for a moment. I was like, that seems like the right in the middle of the sermon, not the beginning of it. <laughs> there we go. Let's start at the beginning. It's going to make a whole lot more sense for everyone, including me. <laughs> so take a moment. Take a moment. And remember, how was it that you first learned the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just take a moment. Was it a vision? Did an angel appear? 
Did you hear a voice? I see all of those are biblical. But no, I'm guessing that if you're at all like me, in fact, I'm guessing that for most of us, I might even hazard to say it's probable that everyone in this room, someone, another human being, told us the good news, right? Might have been your parent, might have been a friend, might have been a coworker, might have been a teacher, might have been a stranger, a complete stranger sitting down next to you, but someone told you the good news of Jesus Christ. Someone helped you to escape the trap of sin. Someone helped you trust God in your life. Someone helped you think through the things that seem to be standing between you and that faith. They helped you overcome those obstacles. They made faith seem reasonable to you. Well, in this passage, Jesus shows us how the Holy Spirit is at work both in the world and in the church through us to testify to his glory and his cross. And so the main idea today is that the Holy Spirit magnifies and extends the work and the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you magnify something, you bring up a magnifying glass, it draws it into greater detail. It allows you to see it. It brings it closer to you. It makes it applicable. If you were to extend it, that means it's going further than it did before. And these are the two things that the Spirit seems to be at work in in the world and in the church. We're going to break this passage and our study of it into two parts. We're going to look at the most complicated portion of this passage, which is mostly in verses 8 through 11. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open. We're looking at John chapter 16. And while we'll be dealing with, yes, 5 through 15, mostly we're going to spend our time looking closely at verses 8 and following. So in this first part, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit shows us that we need Jesus. In this first part, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit shows us that we need Jesus. If you look at verses 8 through 11, it reads as follows. Jesus is speaking. He says, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And I'll be honest, like always, I, you get, you're going to get tired of hearing this from me. There's so much that we could deal with in this passage. I'm going to have to just pick a few things as we go. Jesus is showing us three ways that the Holy Spirit reveals him among the world. He will convict the world concerning three things. One, sin. Two, righteousness. Three, judgment. And our interpretation of what that means hangs on how we understand who is the world and in what sense or what does it mean that he convicts them. So, who's the world? What does it mean to convict them? And then, we're going to ask about these three explanatory phrases. Why? Because they do not believe in me, because I go to the Father, and because the ruler of this world is judged. They will inform what this conviction is. So, first, we have to answer our first question. Who is 
the world? Well, if you've been in our study in John, you already know the answer. we've, We've been over this a number of times in John. It's anyone who is not pursuing a life of faith in Jesus. But pause. Let's think a little bit more particularly. That means that the world could be someone who isn't sure whether there is a God, right? That's someone who's in the world. It could be someone who's just trying to live a decent life, right? That's someone who's in the world. Could be someone who's an outright atheist. That would be someone in the world. It could be someone who's a churchgoer. Because it is anyone who is not living by faith in and love for Jesus above anything else. That's who the world is. So the world is anyone who has not submitted their life and their faith to the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ. So that's who the world is, and that's the scope of the Spirit's work, at least in part. Well, then we have to ask, what does it mean to convict? To convict, here in this context, as best as I could define it, means to meaningfully convince someone of truth. To convict them means to meaningfully convince someone of truth. Sometimes Christians use this word in a similar way. We will say we feel convicted of a behavior or an attitude. And what we mean by that is that we mean a, if we feel a holy guilt. We feel the wrongness of the action. And for Christians, it also means that we feel a longing to repent. We want to live differently. It means we want to depend more fully upon God's spirit and upon his grace. We want our lives to look different. Now for context, and this is a great thing to do with, if you've got a Strong's Concordance, you could figure this out. Hunt down where this word shows up somewhere else. Well, in Matthew 18, verses 15, you'll recognize this. We find this word there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Literally, it could have been translated... Go and convict him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, Paul describes this heartfelt conviction not using the same word, but I thought it was a good expression of it. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, he's speaking of the church, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a kind of conviction that ultimately bears no fruit. A kind of shame and guilt that is not the Spirit's work. We all know people who feel badly about something that they did. But that's not the kind of conviction we're speaking about here. We're speaking about when the Spirit meaningfully convinces someone of God's truth by effectively pointing them to the person of Jesus, by creating and promoting saving faith. Thus, the Spirit's work of saving conviction is not limited to the world. So this is something that the Spirit does among the world. It's something that is peculiar in a sense to what he does to the world, but it doesn't just stop there. 
The Spirit draws us to saving faith and then works within us ever afterward to continually renew and to guide us. So if you were to look at verse 13, you'd see that he says, he will guide you into all truth. So it's something he's going to continue to do. He starts here, but he doesn't leave the process off. To enter a life of healthy and holy discipleship, we must be first convinced or convicted of our sinfulness. And we have to be convinced or shown the righteousness or the truth, sorry, the truth of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to be convinced of the inadequacy of our own righteousness. And consequently, we need to see or be shown the gloriousness of Christ. And then thirdly, we need to be convinced that our sin will not go unnoticed or unpunished, but instead be judged. So while these are not the only obstacles to saving faith and discipleship, they may be some of the most basic obstacles to saving faith and discipleship. I'm almost certain that everyone in this room is likely to know at least one person who struggles with at least one of these convictions. In other words, they, they don't believe that they are a sinner. Or they believe they're a sinner, but they also believe that they are right with God and that they've sorted this out somehow. Or they don't believe that regardless of whether they are a sinner or whether they produce righteousness, that it's of any real significance or consequence because God is not going to judge the world. I'm sure you know someone who struggles with at least one of those, right? And all of us, even if you don't know someone, all of us at one time needed God's Holy Spirit to graciously show us our sin and draw us to our Savior. Nor is this the end of the Holy Spirit's work of holy conviction. Rather, this is just the beginning. The Holy Spirit works among believers and unbelievers to different degrees and in different ways to draw every member of Christ's church to and to preserve them in the glorious person, word, and work of Jesus. So if you want an illustration of what the Holy Spirit is doing in this passage, he's kind of like a farmer. I grew up in New England, and one of the stories of New England is that a lot of New England soil has tons and tons of rocks in it. So when the farmers would set to work there, they'd have to remove obstacles from the soil in order to actually seed the land. So as a farmer, any, any farmers here will know you need to clear the land in order to make it ready. Then you need to open the land with a plow before you can plant the seed. And then you have to nourish that seed. It doesn't just grow on its own. It needs water and sunlight, and it, it needs those things. The Holy Spirit here is going to remove obstacles that stand in the way of saving faith. He's going to open up the heart and plant the truth of Christ inside of it and then nourish it with the word of Christ and with the glory of Christ so that real faith can enduringly grow. So, let's break down these three things that the Holy Spirit does in this context. The Holy Spirit first shows us that we are sinners. So look at verses eight through nine. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, some of us simply do not believe 
that our actions or our lifestyle is wrong. And we need someone to show us that our lives and our choices are displeasing to God and deadly to ourselves. Furthermore, and perhaps what's more important, is that we need to be shown that our pattern of behavior actually results from the orientation of our heart. That how we live is a result of what we believe. In fact, in English, that's why the word believe exists. You can hear the word live inside of believe. It's how you live. I'm sure all of us have experienced a time when someone showed us that we were wrong. Hopefully that person did so lovingly, graciously. But regardless, until and unless someone showed you your fault, you and I would have continued in our error. We wouldn't have known. And that's because our behavior is a reflection of our heart's deepest convictions. That's because you live out what you believe. That's why Jesus can say, out of the heart of man come wicked thoughts and adultery and murder and all that. That's what defiles you. It comes from inside. In short, our sin problem is actually a faith problem. That's why he says here, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The fundamental impediment to our salvation is not actually the particular sin so much as it is the sin of unbelief. Is God angry with lying? Yes. Is he angry with murder? Yes. Is he angry with all kinds of sexual deviance? Yes. But the underlying problem, the real root of all those issues is the sin of unbelief. Paul puts it bluntly in Romans 14, verse 23, when in speaking about conscientious issues, he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Demonstrating that you can even do outwardly good things, but if you don't do them to the glory of God and trusting in his goodness, believing that there is a God, those things are sin. What sanctifies an act ultimately is your trust in God. And the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what is it that the unbeliever fails to believe? Many things. He may not believe that Scripture is an accurate account of God's will. He may believe that God is not, in fact, our creator. He may struggle to believe that Christ really did live, die, and rise from the dead. He might struggle to believe in a final judgment. He might struggle to believe that sin has a real cost. Do you see how each one of these things stands between him and a saving faith? He has to be shown, he has to be helped over these obstacles. There's lots of reasons why your unbelieving neighbor or even why you or I continue in a pattern of sinful behavior. But ultimately, our root problem is a gospel problem. We choose sin because we do not believe that God can or will satisfy us, at least in that moment. And consequently, the delights of sin in that moment appear greater than the goodness of God. And the ways of sin seem sounder and wiser 
than the truth of God. So the remedy for a heart that is hardened against the goodness of God, as we see here, is to pierce it kindly, but firmly, like a surgeon, with the goodness and the truth of Christ. And this means that we must always remember that your unbelieving neighbor's most basic problem is not their sexual preference. It is not their wicked speech. It is not their unloving behavior. It is not their political orientation. Their most fundamental problem is a lack of trust in God to save them and satisfy them. That is where all the other things actually flow from. Their unbelief lies at the root of their sin, not the other way around. Now, if you lead them to Christ, Christ, by the work of his Holy Spirit, will deal with their sin. No true converted Christian comes to Christ and leaves unchanged slowly over time. So, the Holy Spirit works to overcome the first obstacle of sinful unbelief by pointing us to Christ. Next, he must convict us that not only are we sinners, but we are sinful. He must show us that we are not righteous, meaning we can't save ourselves and we desperately need Jesus. So the second thing that the Holy Spirit does is he shows us that we are not righteous. So again, verses 8 and 9, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And because Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all God's goodness, his physical departure leaves no reference point to contradict the world's view of human nature. In other words, we don't have a case study to point to and say, that's what righteousness looks like, and you don't have it. Instead, we're only left with the world's view of human nature, that at worst, we are perhaps morally neutral. A, a blank slate that just gets written on by our environment, or our education, or our friends, or our family. If not, as I continually hear more commonly, I'm pretty sure everyone is basically good. The world suppresses the truth that our sinful behavior results from a sinful nature that is inherited from Adam. And it does this, at least in our context, by blaming our brokenness, just like Adam did, on something outside of us, our family. Well, if you'd seen my parents, then you would know why I behave the way I behave, or our environment. Well, if you had grown up in the community that I grew up in, you'd be like this too, or our lack of education. If you only knew things differently, if they had just only been taught, they would live differently, or they blame it on those in power. There's systems put in place to oppress us, and as a consequence, we are the way we are. All these things have a degree of truth in them. But the world concludes that since we are basically good, we are therefore right with God. In their view, God should be, and forgive the irony of the statement, but I can't find a better way to say it, God should be good enough to acknowledge our efforts toward goodness. That on balance, 
our efforts towards goodness are greater than our weaknesses or our wickednesses. Did you hear that? God should be good enough to recognize that we are good. A few of us would know someone who would say they've never done anything wrong. In fact, that's not a really hard thing to convince anyone of. But almost everyone believes that on balance, most people, including them, are basically good. What I would suggest to you, though, is that this is kind of like the fish swimming in water. If you've practiced corruption your whole life, then honesty will seem strange to you. And if you've lived depending entirely on your own internal sense of well-doing, then to rely on God's spirit and his word to tell you what's really going on, well, that will seem foreign. The man who lives in a tuberculosis clinic does not find it strange that everyone seems winded climbing upstairs. Because you see, if a man has a low view of his sins, he consequently will also have a low view of God. And it would be very easy for him to imagine that on the whole, as a consequence, because his sins are very small and so also is God, he is right with God. To draw that person to faith, then, what must the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit must do more than show the man that he's a sinner. The man's already admitted it. He said, yeah, sure, I do things wrong. I just, it doesn't really matter much. The Spirit must show him not only is sin, he must convict him concerning righteousness. He must show him that he doesn't have any, that he's not right with God. In, in order to do that, he must point him to Christ. Now, how would he do that? Well, he might contrast their hollow and pretentious righteousness with Jesus' genuine obedience, right? He might say, yes, you have an appearance or a semblance of righteousness, but Jesus genuinely served. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus does righteousness like breathing. It is what just flows out of him. He does it rightly, fully, and all the way to his heart. His very core is righteousness. What else might he do? He might expose their hypocritical righteousness by demonstrating Christ's perfect righteousness. He might show them, see, you're doing this, but for wicked motives. Or furthermore, worse still, you might say you do this, but you don't actually do this. And he point to Christ in John 8, 29. Jesus says, he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. I sometimes do it. I do it when it matters. I do it when it needs. No, I always do what pleases him. Christ's righteousness is perfect. Or what else might he do? He might grieve them by showing them the depravity of their sin. And he might do it by showing them the costliness of Christ's cross. Having built up Christ to have loved perfectly, served honestly, he had to die terribly is a gruesome picture of what our sins cost. Or he may expose to them the duplicity of their motivations by glorifying the purity and the perfection of Christ's love. But friends, in all of these examples, note that we, like Isaiah, cannot conceive of our depravity until we see God's true glory. 
The best way to convince a man that he's broken, honestly, deep down, is not so much to keep telling him that he's broken, but as to show him the wholeness of Christ. And as he looks at the beauty, the righteousness, the integrate nature of the most perfect, glorious, risen Christ, it will become painfully obvious that I am not that. I practiced trumpet for a lot of my life, and when I went to high school, I had a band teacher who really wanted to correct some of my mistakes and change my tone and the way that I was performing. And he tried to explain it to me, what, what I was doing wrong, and I just wasn't getting it, and they, he sent me off to practice, I still wasn't getting it. So he said, no, I know what you need. You need to listen to someone who actually knows how to play. And so he gave me a few CDs, one of which was Wynton Marsalis, and I remember listening to that CD, and right then, the instant you hear a master, you know what I'm doing is not that. <laughs> and you can hear the distinction. Friends, seeing a true master humbles you as a student, and it's a wonderful thing. It is a really, really good thing. It is in the splendor of God's glory that our righteousness appears for what it really is, filthy rags. If we can be shown our sin, and if we can be convinced of our sinfulness, then we must also see that there is a judgment, because that will drive us to our saviors. The third obstacle that the Spirit has to overcome is he has to show us that we will be judged Look at verses 8 and 10 again. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I can't go for long. on. I, I forgot to put in. <laughs> because the ruler of this world is judged. When we see that the order of, of the sinful structures that make up this whole entire world, when we know that that ruler is judged and all of his consequent systems are judged, then we'll be able to turn to Christ. But I had a friend growing up who was fond of saying, it's only wrong if you get caught. And we all know someone who bends the law, right? Whether it's the law of our home, meaning they... You know, mom and dad said this, but eh, yeah. or they bend the law of our gym. Well, I'm not supposed to, but I do. Or they bend the laws of our country. We probably know someone who does it in a small way. We probably know someone who does it in a larger way. And many of them, in my experience, encourages others to do the same because C.1, we do what we believe. They don't actually think that it's wrong. They cheat on their taxes. They speed on the roads. They look at certain images they shouldn't, saying, it's only wrong if you get caught. Underneath that sinful attitude lies the belief that God will not judge us. And only the Holy Spirit can convince us that there will be a day of reckoning. And he does this by pointing us to Christ. The cross of Christ is the proof that sin is real. And that it has a cost. The Son of God had to pay it. The cross of Christ is also evidence that God intends to deal with sin. All sin. Every sin. 
Friends, your sins, my sins, they required the death of the Son of God on the cross. And if you are not living your life in the shadow of that reality and in absolute dependence and trust on Jesus for your standing with God, then your sins remain outstanding against the balance of your soul. When you look on the cross, you see that sin is costly. You see that righteousness is precious and that God will not let evil always go unpunished. So the Holy Spirit overcomes the hardness of unbelief by pointing to that awesome, glorious, and beautiful reality of Christ and his cross. And how does he do this? If it hasn't been obvious up to this point, he does this primarily in and through the words and lives of your fellow Christians. Remember that first question? Most of you didn't hear about the gospel because an angel told you. Most of you didn't hear about the gospel because you had a vision. Most of you didn't hear about the gospel because a disembodied voice spoke to you and you just knew it. I'm not denying that those things may happen or have happened. Most of us weren't there. Most of us heard the Holy Spirit and felt his work because someone came to us and convicted us concerning our sin, righteousness, or the coming judgment. Friends, we are the ones who ought to live and speak and act as though there's a judgment. Christians should live in such a way that others, when they look on them, would think, that's odd, why are you doing that? We can say, because I know that I serve a God who will judge. We're the ones also who ought to rejoice as though by Christ's death on the cross, we escape the penalty of divine judgment. We should live in a holy fear and a reverence of a God who sees everything and before whom everyone must stand on that last day. And we must stand and live as Christians who delight in that same God who has by his uttermost grace delivered us from our sin and given us freedom. We're not going to answer for the sins that we committed because of Christ. We should live as those who have the Spirit of God, who cries in our hearts again and again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, the Spirit's work is not finished when we first acknowledge our sin. The Spirit's work is not finished when we first acknowledge Christ's righteousness, nor is his work finished when we first acknowledge that there is a coming judgment. No, the life of a Christian is not one moment of profound repentance of raising a hand or signing a card or walking an aisle. It is a long, faithful, progressive transformation through ongoing, continual repentance brought about by the Holy Spirit in ever-renewing faith. To bring us to God's kingdom, the Spirit must grow in us an ever-increasing love and trust in our Savior. And that brings us to part two. So in part one, the Holy Spirit showed us the Jesus that uh, showed us that we showed us our sin. And in part two, the Holy Spirit shows us the Jesus that we need. If you were convinced that you were a sinner, if you were convinced that you had no means of making yourself right with God, and if you were convinced that God would judge you on the last day, what would that drive you towards? with me briefly but closely at verses 12 through 14. Let's observe three ongoing works of the Spirit. He says, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
Man, I wish he kept talking sometimes. <laughs> One, the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And two, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Three, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, first, the Holy Spirit guides us to Christ. So now we're looking at the former three works are things that the Holy Spirit does both in the lost and in the saved as he draws them to salvation. But what he does here, he only ever does to the saved, as far as I can tell. The Holy Spirit guides us to Christ. Verse 13, he says, he will guide you into all the truth. We know who the truth is. This doesn't mean that the Spirit will explain everything that we want. Rather, it means that we need that whatever we need to live a life of faithful obedience, the Holy Spirit will explain and apply to our hearts. So we need to remember chapter 14, verse 26, where John was talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Spirit takes Jesus, who we can't see right now, and makes him come alive to our heart's senses. Just as the Spirit uses our efforts to share the love of God and his word with unbelievers to bring them to faith, that would be the first three works, he also takes our everyday disciplines to treasure God and his word and our believing friends and our community, and he uses them to bear fruit. He guides us day by day in prayer, study, conversation, and regular duties so as to grow our knowledge and love of God. I would love, and I, I shouldn't, and I won't, I would love to embarrass a number of you, how you have encouraged me, and you probably didn't even know it, uh, that I came to, to church that day just broken and depressed in spiritual misery, and that you prayed, and I heard your prayer, and it lifted up my heart, and it delighted me. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Or there'll be times where I was sitting in a class, just like in Sunday school, and you know, Nathan will be preaching, or Joe will be you know, teaching, or Pastor John will be, and they'll be explaining a text. And all of a sudden, I'll see something in it that it was right there the whole entire time. I just never noticed it, and my heart will be quickened and delighted. That's the Holy Spirit explaining the truth of Christ and applying it to my soul. You're surrounded by that constantly. He guides us day by day in prayer, in study, in conversation, in our regular duties, so as to grow our knowledge and our love for God. Spiritual growth is a constant of Christian discipleship. There's not a single one of us that will ever age out of it. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, if sin depends on us doubting God's word and doubting his promised goodness, then the Spirit helps to sever the root of sin by continually guiding our growth in a love for God and his truth. The Spirit just keeps assuring you of the things that Satan tries to deny. 
Satan will come and say, did he really say? And the spirit will say, yes, he did. It's right there. And Satan will come and say, but are you sure? I, I think he's trying to hold something back from you. The spirit will come to you and say, no, no, every blessing in, this, in the heavenly places is yours through Jesus Christ. He's not trying to deny you anything. The spirit helps us. So secondly, then, the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to our heart and our life. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to our heart and our life. Verse 13, he says, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, this sentence is hard to translate, and we don't have time for a Greek lesson. But I think that it means that just as the Holy Spirit convicts an unbeliever of his sin, his weakness, and his coming judgment, so also in the life of a believer, he will announce to him, that's the word declare, he will declare to you, so he announces to him in his heart and convicts him in a positive way, if that makes sense. So if, he, if the other one is to convict concerning your sin, your weaknesses, and the coming judgment, this is a kind of conviction of certain things that are to come. And the verb tense there might be better translated as which will happen presently. Namely, the glory, the goodness, and the work of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was Jesus about to walk out and do? He was about to walk out and go to the cross, ransom his church, and rise from the dead. And so the Spirit's going to take that thing, which, as we'll clearly see in the next section, the disciples are like, I, I do not understand what you are talking about. And the Spirit's going to take that and he's going to apply it to their heart in such a way that it's going to change their life. The emphasis of this passage then is not on a kind of prophetic view of the future, but rather that the Spirit takes the events that were just around the corner, Jesus' death and resurrection, and he applies them to our hearts in a meaningful way that allows us to live out our lives all the more fruitfully. The Spirit reminds us that in Christ, we are more than sinners. We have become saints. He reminds us that in Christ, we are heirs to all God's spiritual blessings. He's the one who reminds us of Christ's acceptance when the world rejects us. He's the one who reminds us of Christ's glory when the world tempts us with its treasures. The Spirit helps us to witness to Christ and to follow Christ by continually renewing and applying the gospel to our soul third mark of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is his chief work is to glorify Christ. Verse 14, and he will glorify me. Friends, do you see how in removing every obstacle and in strengthening us for faithful obedience, the Spirit continually pointed to Christ? How, how am I to know that I'm a sinner? Look at Christ. How am I to know that I'm not right with God? Look at Christ. How am I to know that there's a judgment? Look at Christ. How am I to know the truth of God? Look at Christ. How am I to know what to do with my life? Look at Christ. People can put on emotional displays. People can pretend to know the future. But those are not necessarily a mark of the presence and work of the Spirit of God. But wherever you find a new and enduring conviction about God's truth, wherever you find real and enduring repentance and trust in Jesus, wherever you find an increased esteem in God's goodness and glory, that, that is the work of the Holy Spirit.
because the Holy Spirit magnifies and extends the work and the glory of Christ. Friends, the Holy Spirit intends to use you. He intends to use you and your witness, your life, to help others escape the obstacles that are preventing them from coming to saving faith. And I hope you see how the Holy Spirit is at work every day, renewing you, strengthening you, reminding you of who Jesus is, reminding you of what he's done, reminding you of his love for you. I hope you have a greater confidence in God's help, clarity about the essential work of the third person of the one true God. So as we go away today, let's remember the three basic things here. One, the three basic obstacles to faith. Someone needs to lovingly and gently but firmly, using God's word and relying on God's spirit, show us our sin. Remind us of the inadequacy of our righteousness and remind us of the reality of the coming judgment. Secondly, we need to remember that the main ways that the Spirit both convicts us of sin and encourages us in obedience is by reminding us and applying to us the truth of the gospel, by pointing to Christ. And thirdly, the main evidence of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit is an increased love and delight in the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ. Someone's loving Jesus more day by day, that's the Spirit. So ask yourself, how can I better point myself or those that I love or those that are around me to Jesus? How can I better explain? How can I better remind? How can I better reveal the gospel to my own heart or to the hearts of those that are around me? Because that's the Spirit's work. And he uses Christians to do it. He points sinners to Christ. He shows them their sin, and he shows them their Savior. May Almighty God be pleased to humble us by his Spirit. Show us our sin and show us our Savior. May he strengthen us and quicken us, we who have seen the glory of Christ, to share him with one another, and so to help one another to live a life of faithful obedience so that we would be witnesses in word, in deed, in life, in death to the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is a task that's too big for us. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Oh God, if there's anyone here who has not yet seen by the light of your word their own sin, their own depravity, and the coming judgment, then we pray, Lord God, that you send your spirit to convict them. But do not leave them in despair. Show them the goodness and the glory and the wonder, the sin-atoning righteousness of Jesus Christ. Show them their sin, yes, but show them their Savior. And God, make us able ministers that we could go to those that are around us and Give us eyes to see the obstacles that are standing in the path of faith and give us the words and point us to the places in your word where we may help someone else. Uproot those obstacles and find the truth planted deep in the soil of their heart. God, ultimately with all of us, we ask desperately, work by the power of your spirit. So uphold us, so guide us, so lead us that we will walk in a posture of repentance until the day of your son. Even so.
Come, Lord Jesus. Quickly come. Amen.